Hello, I'm Dr Mike Rutherford, a Dato Legal Advisor at Dental Protection based in Brisbane. And welcome to the next instalment of Respites. It's a series of podcasts produced exclusively for members of Dental Protection. Respites looks at the key dental legal risks and issues affecting dental practitioners across Australia and provides helpful advice and guidance on how to steer clear of them, leaving you free to provide safe and high-quality dental care for your patients. In this edition, we focus on when should I use a written consent form, and this is a topic that comes up on almost a daily basis. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Annalene Weston. Annalene, in your recent webinar, When is a Consent Form Not Enough?, you advised us that in many respects, a consent form is never enough to verify valid consent. Why is this? Why can't I just use a written consent form all the time? Thanks, Mike. It's a really great question because intuitively, it feels quite sensible that we would speak to a patient, advise them what we think is going to happen and what we believe is going to go right and what we believe could go wrong. And the patient then signs something to indicate that they understand this and that these risks are accepted by them. But regretfully, standardised consent forms are not helpful in validating we have informed consent. The reason for this is simply that we as a populace have become conditioned to ignore disclaimers. So think about all the things that you do in your life which require you to sign something before you proceed. So as you know, it was my son's birthday quite recently and he's nine years old. So I took him and his mates to some laser shooting place for his birthday party. But before we could go in, every single one of the parents had to sign a liability release form before their child was allowed to participate in the birthday party. They didn't read them. They just signed them. Think about every time you book a flight or you buy something online and you click those terms and conditions box. I guarantee you that you don't click into it to read what those terms and conditions are before you agree to them. Or it may even be that you click that box once and try to read it, but the terms and conditions were lengthy and written in such a legally complex language that you basically decided there weren't enough hours in your life to take the time to read it. So you didn't bother and you ticked the box anyway. That's how life has made us react to written consent and written disclaimers. So consequently then, when we start talking about written consent forms in the field of medicine and dentistry, it's generally accepted by the courts that our patients treat our written consent forms in exactly the same way that they would treat the terms and conditions box when they're booking a flight. They tick it, they ignore it, and they move on. So the problem that we have then when you have a patient who signed a consent form and you produce that consent form in isolation with nothing else to accompany it or support, that you even had a conversation with the patient about the risks and warnings of their treatment. The patient's essentially going to say, oh, that old thing, well, I didn't read that, or I read it, but I didn't understand it, or she made me sign it. And the fundamental issue that you have is there can be no valid consent in a situation where the patient's been compelled or they haven't understood what they were reading or, in fact, they haven't read the document at all. So this, Mike, is why we would say a consent form is not binding or does not prove that a patient gave you to consent, you their consent, sorry, to proceed with treatment. So you say it's not binding to use a consent form because it doesn't prove anything. So why are you telling me this now? Why is this podcast titled, When Should I Use a Consent Form? Aren't you contradicting yourself? Well, not intentionally, Mike. There are some situations where it is mandated that a consent form should be used, and I'm going to talk about each of these in turn. 
The first comes from our dental board guidance, which is the code of conduct. And you can find this along with the other dental board documents on the dental board webpage. Section 3.5 sets out the dental board's expectations of informed consent, which the dental board tells us is a person's voluntary decision about healthcare made with knowledge and understanding of the benefits and risks involved. The dental board set out their expectations regarding how a practitioner ought to achieve consent. And it tells us that good practice involves seven key elements. And one of the elements involved in good practice is documenting consent appropriately, including considering the need for written consent for procedures which may result in serious injury or death. Now, I think we would all agree that many of the treatments we're providing on a day-to-day -day in practice are not going to result in serious injury or death. And it's in those circumstances then that we turn to the Australian Dental Association guidance, which isn't mandated, but rather it's a suggestion of how we're going to achieve this best practice. The key document for this is the ADA guideline on consent for care in dentistry, which is policy 5.15. And again, this sets out the importance of consent and the fundamentals. And it tells us quite early on that consent may be given in writing, orally or by conduct. In most routine dental examinations and treatments, the patient's consent is obtained verbally. However, where the proposed treatment involves complex or invasive procedures, anesthesia or sedation, significant expense and or is of an elective or cosmetic nature, good practice, good professional practice, should I say, warrants the use of a signed written consent form to document the process of consent and confirming the patient's agreement to the proposed treatment. The ADA document goes on further to say that oral consent is sufficient for most dental treatment. And I think that's important to know, Mike. But for major treatment, either in terms of invasiveness or expense, a written consent form acknowledging that the nature, implications and risks of the proposed procedure have been explained may provide useful evidence that the information was given and consent granted. Now, the first thing you'll notice from this guidance is that almost everything is couched in terms of could or may. And I appreciate that this is more than a little frustrating because we would all prefer to have absolutes as our guidance, but we don't. But what this guidance does do, however, is set out the appropriateness of having everything documented in your records rather than designing a one-size-fits-all form for each treatment that you undertake. So if I can't just use one of my consent forms, how then am I going to document that I have the consent? One of the most vexing issues for dental practitioners is that we feel that we don't have enough time to write quality records. And unfortunately, documenting the consent conversation very much contributes and compounds this problem. Now, the Dental Board Code of Conduct states that for each appointment, there must be clear documentation describing the consent of the patient, client or consumer. So essentially you do need to document or have a praises of the conversation that you've had with that patient. Now this is something that will be explored further in the podcast, How Do I Document Risks and Warnings? So I don't wish to be repetitious. But what I will say is that if I had the choice between taking you into a dental board hearing with a consent form the patient had signed, and that form looked like a piece of paper with some text on it, that, so you'd print it out like a letter that had all the risks and warnings of a root canal on it perhaps, or taking you in with some contemporaneous clinical records about that root canal, which set out what the patient had been advised and listed the risks and warnings that patient had been given, I would much rather take you in with those clinical records and the consent form as we have a 
greater likelihood of that documentation being accepted as valid consent than we do the form being accepted. Great. So that's fine. But how am I going to find the time to do this? It's tricky, isn't it? I've just said to you that time is one of the biggest enemies of the dental practitioner. And then I'm now telling you that you can't just get the patient to sign a standardized consent form. And you, in fact, need to find a way of documenting all of this in your records. But the good news I have for you is there are many, many resources available to you to help you be more efficient in your record keeping to ensure that you are able to document all of this. And this includes resources on our e-learning platform PRISM, which you can find on the Dental Protection website. On PRISM, there's a resource on record keeping and an education model to work through. There's also a webinar on PRISM regarding dental records. And then, of course, we also have our dental record keeping for dental practitioner workshops, which run around Australia twice a year. And you can find those on our events pages. So please don't give up hope. It can be done. And we do have resources to help you find a way to document what it is that you need to in your records. Thanks, Annalene, for guiding us through this quite tricky subject. And thank you, colleagues, for listening in today. We hope that this podcast was helpful to you and look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Goodbye. Goodbye.